Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The truth about online gambling. More millennials are using their smartphones to have a flutter and more people are funding their habit with credit cards. MPs tell the FT that the rules need to be tougher. We bring you the full report. Plus, BBC Moneybox presenter Paul Lewis on the quirk in the tax system that disadvantages people who read books or newspapers online. And property peer-to-peer lending. Can it ever be a good idea? David Stevenson, our adventurous investor, rocks up to give it a good going over. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you this week's news in downloadable form. Fancy having a flutter on the World Cup? Chances are you'll be doing it via a smartphone. It's estimated that over a billion pounds worth of bets will be placed on World Cup games alone in the UK, and young people gambling on smartphones are making up a bigger slice of the bookies' custom. But when does some harmless fun tip into problem gambling? Joining me to discuss is Kate Bearley, FT Money reporter. Welcome, Kate. Hi, Claire. So we often think of gambling as going to the bookies, but What does gambling look like for young people now? And is that leading to any issues? Um, Well, yeah, gambling's really moved out of the high streets and uh, onto mobile phones and tablets. And that is really disproportionately affecting young people who are betting more frequently than ever on their phones, on their laptops, and suffering quite high rates now of problem gambling compared to the past. So mobile phone gambling saw the biggest rise of any form last year. And this is something that's become very normalised among young people, among millennials who will kind of bet on sports, you know, when they go to the football. Now, for some people, that's obviously just a habit and it's kind of, you know, manageable. But uh, for other people, this is quickly becoming a problem. So millennials aged 25 to 34 accounted for the biggest increase in online gambling of any age group last year, according to the Gambling Commission. They're now the most likely of any age group to hold more than five gambling accounts, uh, more likely to have gambled at least once in the past four weeks, and the most likely of any age group to gamble via mobile phone, and also seeing the highest increases in problem gambling. So it clearly is a problem. Now, for any millennials or indeed parents um, of young people who are listening on the podcast, I mean, speaking as a parent, myself my stepson fits into that age group just about and he is regularly doing what's called in play betting Um, Mm. so you know it's only small bets of you know 10p maybe 50p but 
it's like who will be the first footballer to score a goal or yeah, increasingly you know, arcane number of things that you can bet and on the digital revolution means that you know you don't just have to bet before the game on the on the end score of the match there are all kinds of things and the odds change um so it's really becoming part of um watching sport now i think for a lot of young people it kind of makes it gives it more of an edge and makes it mm. more interesting but then the mps that you spoke to um in the article don't think that the regulations in this country have kept up with the speed of innovation that the online bookmakers have come up with no exactly all the, all the focus recently has been on um cuts to the maximum stakes on fits odds betting terminals the so-called one-arm bandits exactly. in the high street shops um so those have been cut from a hundred pounds to two pounds but people argue that you could just as easily you know more easily just go online and spend however much you wanted on an online casino game because there just aren't the same limits. Also, you can pay by credit card online uh, to gamble, which you can't offline. So there's a real sense here that the the rules are not kind of fit for the digital age. And what do people say should be done about this? Well, there is a group of MPs um, and lords, some of whom I spoke to for this article, who say that we need a kind of overhaul of the rules, really. We need to look at things like banning the use of credit cards to gamble online. We need to look at limiting the stakes for online bets. And uh, a lot of people, um, for example, Deputy Labour leader Tom Watson, uh, particularly thinks we need to look at advertising. I mean, at the moment, you can, or gambling companies can advertise in live sports matches, um, even though the normal rules state that you can't advertise pre-watershed. So that means that, you know, live sports matches are kind of full of gambling ads and people say that's something that we really need to look at. But you also spoke to the online uh, bookmakers themselves for the purposes of the article. And um, interestingly, they say that because of the way digital gambling works, it makes it easier for them to spot people who are potentially problem gamblers. Yeah, exactly. The the industry says that the real focus here should be on using data in a clever way, you know, spotting problem gambling, uh, using the kind of analytics that they gather on their customers and uh, using that to contact those people, to try and help those people. And in fact, you know, the industry is doing something here. For example, they are working on a multi-company exclusion policy where you can self exclude you can ban yourself from one site and in doing so you know ban yourself from all of them so there is some progress being made there well obviously more progress needs to be made well thanks very much there to kate Bailey. you can read her full report online now the truth about millennials and gambling at ft.com slash money that's free to read online and it does contain details of any um, help that you may need if gambling is becoming a problem for you How should we tax the digital economy? The amount of tax being paid by the big tech firms has come under scrutiny, particularly as their more analogue competitors complain that levies such as business rates fall disproportionately lightly on those digital business models. But what about the taxes that consumers pay on some digital services? This is what Paul Lewis has been investigating for his column in FT Money this week, and he joins me now on the line. Welcome, Paul. Hello, Claire. Well, essentially, you've got some bad news for people who like reading books on a Kindle or e-reading device. Yes, indeed. Um, It's a strange thing. But if you buy a book in a bookshop, then you pay no tax on it at all. It's exempt from VAT. But if you buy uh, a book to read on your Kindle or another e-reader, or indeed a digital subscription for a a well-known newspaper like the FT (laughs) or a magazine, (laughs) you will be paying VAT on that. Whereas if you buy the paper copy, there is no VAT. So 
it's obviously going to put the price up of these things by 20%, and I think that contributes to the fact that if you do buy a book to read on an e-reader, it, it's often not that much cheaper than buying the, the hefty paper volume that's been printed out and carted all over the country. Well, indeed, and, and if you're like me and you buy books um, second-hand, then it's um, often way cheaper. But you, you dub this phenomenon the return of taxes on knowledge. So how widespread is it? Yes, well, it is a return of taxes on knowledge. These were finally scrapped as long ago as 1855. I mean, even I don't remember that. Uh, <laughs> um, but it was a campaign. They were called Taxes on Knowledge. It was a tax on newspapers. They'd previously been taxes on paper. And the idea was that you took all those taxes off so that people could inform themselves and educate themselves and learn. And that's been the case right up until the advent of, of electronic versions of publications. Um, so it applies to subscriptions to periodicals and newspapers. As I said, it applies to e-books. Anything that you buy online is treated as a, an electronic transfer rather than a, a piece of print, and you are taxed at the standard rate of 20%. Now, it's a bit hard to work out how much it would cost to scrap it. Mm. We know that the exemption for paper books and newspapers and so on costs the Treasury about £1.6 billion a year. And we know that roughly one in seven pounds spent on a book is spent digitally. Mm. And you can do a bit of, I mean, I call it a bit of a back of an envelope or, you know, rough spreadsheet calculation. I reckon it would cost 300 odd million for the Treasury to say, OK, however you buy your knowledge, whether it's on paper or electronically, it will be free of VAT. So round about 300 million, that kind of thing. Which doesn't sound like a lot um, in the grand scheme of things, but of course the Chancellor is in a bit of a tight spot at the moment as he admitted in his Mansion House speech last week. So do you think he would really consider trying to correct this digital anomaly? Well, my suggestion is he does it as a kind of sweetener because, yes, he's going to have to raise taxes and he could do that very straightforwardly by putting a penny on income tax, for example, which would raise him five billion a year um, and he would have to do that four times to raise his £20 billion a year for the NHS. Indeed. But he could do that if he chose to. Um, and whatever he does, we will notice it because £20 billion is a, is a not inconsiderable amount of money, even for the Chancellor. So my suggestion is whatever he does to raise the money to fulfil the Prime Minister's promise, he should say, yes, but at the same time, I have exempt, again, all electronic material rather than printed material from tax, as historically it has been for well over 150 years. Well, thanks very much to Paul Lewis. We will await to see how the Treasury responds to your column, but you can read Paul's column in the money section of the FT Weekend newspaper this Saturday or on ft.com right now. And don't forget to tune into Moneybox from 12 noon on BBC Radio 4 this coming Saturday. You've undoubtedly heard of peer-to-peer -peer lending, but how about in a property context? Teaming up with other investors to buy a large and illiquid asset like a property could enable those with smaller amounts of capital to get in on the action. But is it ever a good idea? Joining me on the line is David Stevenson, our adventurous investor columnist who has been investigating this growing field. Welcome, David. Hello, Claire. So firstly, explain to me, how does peer-to-peer -peer lending work in a property context? Well, traditionally, the idea of peer-to-peer -peer is, is that uh, I, an investor, have some money that I would like to lend to somebody else who's a borrower, the peer-to-peer -peer element. Um, in the case of peer-to-peer -peer property lending, that's the same model. You effectively, I, an investor, want to lend some money to someone else who is probably a 
for instance, property developer or buy-to-let landlord, mm. and they're developing a property, but they are wanting to borrow money on their property. So effectively, it's just a loan like any other loan. It's just a loan that's asset-backed, so it's secured against some property. Um, and that property might be a buy-to-let actual property, or it might be something that's being developed. Uh, it might even be a piece of land that's going to be developed. But in reality, it's a loan to a property developer, buy-to-let landlord. could even be a small family builder. Uh, they tend to get into this market as well. Um, so that's traditionally how peer-to-peer lending works. And what kind of returns are on offer? Yeah, it varies greatly. So you you can get anything from um, kind of three three and a half percent at the lowest range for what we call peer to peer buy to let mortgages, where you're actually effectively the person who's borrowing is another uh, buy to let landlord who has actually a mortgage with you, and you can get all the way up to eight nine percent in some cases, and yeah, more likely to be around five to seven percent. Um, in terms of lending returns, the five to seven is four. I'd actually say more narrowly, four and a half to six and a half is the kind of sweet spot for this market. And then, obviously, the big question is how risky is it? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, look. I mean, it, it, on one level, it, it could be argued to be less risky than, say, peer-to-peer consumer lending. So, peer-to-peer consumer lending outfits like Ratesetter and Zopa, um, they're not secured. So they tend to be unsecured lending, so consumer lending, whereas at least these are secured against an asset, so usually a property, usually a house or a building. So on one level, they're, they're, they're actually less risky because they're secured, they're asset-backed. On, a, on another level, though, they're slightly more risky, I suppose. I mean, consumer lending goes through cycles as well, but mm. the property market is very much going for a cycle. And we've already seen the first signs of that cycle um, sort of turning downwards. You know, the, the papers, including the FT, have been full of articles the last couple of weeks about the num- declining number of transactions, the declining level of house prices. And, and if you talk to most commercial real estate people, which is a separate market from residential, they would tend to think that you're probably near the top of the property cycle at the moment. They can't really push rents up much more and prices are pretty high. So, you know, however you look at it, it's difficult to argue that we're not at a downward inflection or at the top of with a downward inflection coming of a property cycle. And you say in the column um, different ways that people could get into this market if they wanted to. Clearly, it is one for the adventurous investors only. Mm, But if people are tempted, what kind of questions should they ask before they commit? Well, it's interesting because what it, it, a lot of investors go for the classic kind of yield illusion. So what they see, they see the top line number and they go, oh, I like the look of that. So you know, if, I, if, I'm, if I've got lenders who will lend to you at, say, 6 7%, people go, oh, that sounds interesting. Mm. Um, the problem, of course, though, is that that's only as good as the, people, as the quality of the borrowers. So therefore, and the quality of the platform. And those are the two sets of questions you sort of need to ask, which is, who are you lending to? Where are they uh, investing your money? So by that, I mean... What in what are, are they uh, buy-to-let landlords, which I tend to have a little bit more suspicion about, or small family builders, which I'm slightly more enthusiastic about. Uh, where so regions matter. London, Greater London area, is clearly suffering in a residential market more issues than other regions. Other regions are doing quite well. Um, so the, to to whom, where. Um, and the platform also matters because a lot of people just think, oh well, it, it's you know, it's well secured. They've it's got a it's got a low LTV. You hear this number, this this acronym a lot, LTV, loan to value ratio. Um, and what that means is, hundred pound property, I lend you sixty pounds. The LTV is sixty percent. Um, and by and large, um, LTVs don't tend to be much above seventy percent. Um, so that sounds reassuring on paper. But the problem you have to ask about the platform is, is you're working on a platform. Uh, you're putting your money to work on the platform. And if something goes wrong, it's the platform that has to get your money back 
fundamentally, or mm. it's the platform that has to do the due diligence. So you've always got to work out what happens if it goes wrong. So what happens if you if the platform, for instance, has to take possession of the property? Are they going to hang around and redevelop it and do what they call a workout? Um, or are they going to do what the banks did in the last recession when, pro- when property went into a dive, which is they just all basically sold them all instantly, pushed down the price, and then um, and if you were an investor at that point, you got hit. Well, clearly lots to think about. Thanks very much there to David Stevenson, the FT's adventurous investor columnist. You can read his column online now. Is peer-to-peer property lending ever a good idea? Go to ft.com slash money. That's it from The Money Show this week. To get in touch with our team of experts, email us money at ft.com or tweet us at ftmoney. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.